live from the mist and shrouded mountaintop fortress that is X and Y Communications Headquarters. You're listening to the world famous Mountaintop Podcast. And now, here's your host, Scott McKay. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the big show. This is Scott McKay coming at you from San Antonio, Texas. With me today is a new friend of mine who reached out to me on Twitter, and I couldn't have been more pleased that he did because he is a 28 year old guy who has been to every country on earth. His name is Henrik Jeppesen, and he's from Denmark. Henrik, welcome, man. Thank you very much. Now, you and I have been talking at length, actually, kind of sharing our travel stories, as it were. And uh, it's fascinating, of course, that you've been to all these places at such a young age. I think the first thing these guys are going to want to know is what caused you to put so much focus on world travel so early in your life? I think it started when I became um, maybe 13. I started watching movies from all over the world, and I was inspired by these movies, and I wanted to make travel my number one priority in life. So um, that means you have to sacrifice a lot. You have to put travel as your main focus. So that means that friends and family um, you can't see very often when you go away for so long. And For me, it took 10 years to visit every country, and the last six was full-time travel. So it's it's been a lot. Now, I think a lot of people are going to automatically assume that you're some sort of trust fund baby, that you have these millions that were handed to you that you could travel with, but that's not your story at all. How have you financed all of this travel? Right. I've visited every country in the world uh, on a budget, so I have had alternative ways of, of visiting the world. So number one is I've tried at least in the last four years not to spend anything on accommodation. So I did that for many years. I tried to stay with local people through couchsurfing. And then later I got the block and lots of hotels hosted me. And um, airlines, they also came in um, in 2012. Uh, before that, I tried to book low-cost airlines uh, when they had promos. So you could book a bunch of tickets. Um, low-cost buses is something new, but it's becoming very, very big all over the world, including the States. So I think I booked around maybe a trip I did in that two years ago. I probably booked 25 bus tickets with Megabus for around $30 or something. So it's not expensive. You just have to book ahead of time with these low cost, whether it's airlines or bus companies, you have to book ahead of time. And then if you cover accommodation, if you cover transportation, then you come a long way. Then you don't have much more expenses left than eat in supermarkets instead of restaurants. It does not cost much to visit every country. I, I, I've traveled around 3,000 days in my life and spent an average around $25 a day approximately. So that's, that's around $80,000. It's not cheap, but if you think about it, do you spend $25 a day when you, for your living cost in your home country? Denmark is a very expensive country, so definitely I would have spent that and I think a lot more. So it's actually been cheaper for me to visit every country, I would say, than if I just had stayed at home and had a job I probably wouldn't have enjoyed. So the end result is very, it's been very satisfying. Yeah. You know, that pans out to like $10,000 a year, which is chump change to anybody in the Western world. So yeah, you've been able to do this really on a shoestring, which is fascinating to me. I think it helps to be single when you do that. (laughs) Yeah. You don't have to invite anyone out for dinner. So that's good. You can just go to the supermarket and find something for yourself. So it's maybe not as nice, you know, going to the supermarket and eat often, but in the last four or five years, I managed to get into some very nice restaurants as well, simply just by writing to them and ask if they could help me out with a meal, and then I would they would be part of my project. And uh, so I did from time to time have those 
great food experiences as well. Now, what we're going to dig into here, of course, is this whole idea of being a worldly man, which I think a lot of times guys at least feel like they should aspire to because a guy who has more experience, knows more about how the world operates, knows more about other cultures, is perceived even by women to be a man who's more mature and a man who has more ability, greater wherewithal in a wider variety of situations. And that's just really hot to women. Now, I think most of the guys, when they listen to you and they listen to the level of maturity in your voice, Henrik, they'd never guess you were 28 years old. And indeed, some of that maturity is coming through just in how you communicate. What would you say are some of the greatest ways that travel in a very real way, Henrik, since you started at age 17, has helped you transition from being a boy to being a man? I'm from a very small village in Denmark just lived outside a village of around 400 people. So I would say I grew up in an area where people probably are not very open-minded towards differences. So when I travel to places that many people have a negative opinion about based on what they hear in the media, it changed me a lot. Like I've traveled to the Middle East. We talked about before this show about how much we like the Middle East and we've never been treated better. That is the thing. You, you, know, you go there and you have experiences with people firsthand you really change. You get the impression maybe when you, you hear about any of these politicians talking badly about Iran or countries in the Middle East, but you can never judge a country based on the actions of their government. I agree that Iran has, their government has done some bad things, but all the people should not be judged on that. So if you go there firsthand and have amazing experiences with the people, that changed you a lot and you become more open-minded and also you realize that you can have a friend anywhere in the world. Before that, I pretty much tried to have friends that were very like-minded, that were, um, well, maybe not like-minded, but were from the same area from my own country. I was a little bit afraid maybe of different cultures, how people live their lives very differently from the way I live mine. But now I realize those things are not important to have a friend, you know. If you can have a good time, a good conversation, you actually also learn a lot from people that live a very, very different life from yours. So that's some of the best that came out of my travels is accept that we cannot all be the same. And it's okay that some people think differently about things than I do. Now, also with travel comes what I always term puzzles. Not everything's always going to go right. Sometimes you're going to get sick. Sometimes the visa isn't going to exactly happen the way you need it to. Your plans are going to get changed. Your plans are going to get thwarted. I would think a lot of that really would help contribute to you being a better man and being able to handle perhaps crisis situations a lot better than maybe other guys would who've been more insulated. What do you think? You put it very well. Uh, I just thought about this the other day that issues. I'm back in Denmark for a short while now to get a driver's license, which I've never had before. But normally issues I would have back home would be big problems. Now they are very small problems because I've had much, much bigger challenges on the road that I've been able to tackle. That's helped me so much because now I'm able to, to easily handle things that comes up based when I compare myself to before I went away on this journey. So it helped me a lot. I mean, there's been so many times you talk about the visa issues been so many times where things don't go the way you hope. And also you learn how to better to handle your frustration because you've been frustrated so many times. So you learn that things are out of your hands many times. It's, there's no more you can do. You can only do your best. And then it's up to destiny, up to um, 
it's up to to other people to decide if things go the way you hope. So that's something um, that makes life a lot easier. It has made life a lot easier for me. So now you've mentioned this whole idea of becoming a man who can see past the politics of a certain country and realize that people around the world basically are human beings, not mere images of their government. And we've noticed the same thing. You mentioned the Middle East. You've mentioned some other places that you've been where perhaps an American or a European would think, well, you know, that is a country that's hostile towards us. Therefore, it would be dangerous to go there. And then you fly in and you're on the ground there and people are inviting you over for dinner and they're interested in learning about you and where you're from. And you're like, well, these people are actually pretty nice. (laughs) You know, they're not all trying to kill me. They're not trying to infiltrate me. They're not trying to proselytize me or anything that I was told would happen if I came here. And I think you covered that really well. And we've also talked about how you learn how to deal with the stresses and so forth. What I want to turn my attention to now is the whole idea of becoming a man who wants to reach out more once you have gone and visited other people in the world. Have you found that to be true also? Yes, I found that before when I started this journey, I was shy. I was afraid of requesting things from people. Now in this journey, I've had to ask thousands of people, many thousands of people. And a lot of times people say, no, they're not able to help you. In the beginning, when you get rejected so many times, it's, it turns into frustration. But now you just, it's just very easy to, to handle that frustration. I think it's the same thing as you just need to get into X amount of visa difficulties or X amount of rejections from companies before you, you, you don't care about it anymore. So uh, if you're very frustrated because you get rejected, it could be a job or things like that. Just keep writing and writing and writing until someone say yes. And also at the same time, the more you get rejected, the more easy and the more I don't care about it. But then I think that would be an interesting thing to talk about is that when you do a project and start up a project that until you get that first yes, it's going to to feel impossible. But then when you get one yes, it, it means the whole world because then you can tell other companies, actually that company said yes. And that makes the whole difference. And that's how it it was for me, because if I had not gotten that first approval from a hotel that wanted to host me or that first airline that wanted to give me a free ticket, I think it would have been very, very difficult to do this project because it is required in some places of the world, sponsorships, you don't have much money because it's not everywhere in the world to have those low cost airlines I usually recommend to people. So um I would say it's fairly cheap to visit around 100 countries in the world. But when you have to visit every country, there will be some countries that are very expensive unless you can get sponsorships. Well, now it sounds like you're talking about patience and persistence, which are certainly very mature traits also. So I can see exactly how that would work. That kind of harkens back to the idea of having to solve the puzzles when you're out. You have said that traveling makes you more colorblind. It makes you more acceptant of other people's cultures. And we've seen that a lot in our own travels. Even our two youngest kids can walk up to any kid anywhere in the world and say, hey, you want to be my friend? You want to play? And the kids respond in kind. And it's wonderful to see how no matter where we are, the kids can make friends. The kids can be accepting if another person looks a different way or their lifestyle is very different. But sometimes you go places in the world, Henrik, and people aren't doing very well. You know, the poverty is overwhelming. Sometimes you see people who are suffering from ailments or situations that we thought have long since been eradicated. You know, at least we don't see them in the Western world. Has your travel allowed you to have more of a heart for other people and and see the need to give back? 
or have you just really seen this as one big adventure? And I think I kind of know the answer. I'm sending you a softball. But go ahead and comment on that. Yeah, I mean, you see advertisement, at least in Denmark, all the time to support Africans, to support countries with, uh, with a lot of poverty. Now, when you've been there firsthand and seeing um, kids living in the street, maybe without parents and things like that, it's really, it changes you a lot as well. People sometimes say what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, but sometimes it can also go the opposite direction. I would definitely say that some of the days I've had that impression of when you've seen those people uh, is something that stays with you. So I think it's the same thing as watching um, documentaries about a controversial topic. It might not be enjoyable to watch, but I think maybe it's necessary. So that's the same thing. You can only go to Africa and stay at the safari lodges. You also have to see the other side to understand it fully. So that's pretty much, I think, my answer to that. Um, maybe you were asking about the same thing before, but you have to keep in mind, English is not my first language, so there might have been a word or two I, I didn't get there. But um, Fair enough, that, no worries. Did that answer the question? Or Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I'm thinking about as you were talking is that when our kids travel with us, they complain less. Now, when they're at home, if their TV show isn't on or they can't have ice cream before bed, they're like, oh, come on. And sometimes they'll be a little bit more emotional than that. And meanwhile, when we go to a place like Ethiopia, they buckle down and they realize this is an adventure. They see firsthand that, hey, you know, some of these other children don't have all the luxuries we have. So they know better. And indeed, I think that's transferable over to most of our experiences, even as adults when we travel. We go other places and we realize what an incredible privilege it is even to be there and to travel the world. Other people may not even ever get to leave their village, and yet we have the power and indeed the political ability to travel. I mean, we went to North Korea, and I'm sure you've been there too. Those people can't leave unless they're very politically privileged. And they're very interested in you and where you come from because you represent their only opportunity to really learn something real about America. And, you know, that's another thing that's very sobering when you travel is you realize just how blessed you are. And what it does is it doesn't make you arrogant, hopefully. I mean, whenever we see arrogant travelers who are trying to take and think that they need to be served and everybody needs to speak their language or else they're stupid or something, most of those people aren't very seasoned travelers. They're people who are going to Europe for the first time and are kind of uppity about it or something like that. People who are true world travelers understand with humility the gravitas of what they're able to do. And they also, like you said very eloquently, Henrik, first language or not, you see all of these differences and you learn from them. You're not there to judge, you're there to learn. And I think what happens is when you wrap all that up, you realize, hey, you know, I have less to complain about. I should stop bitching and just start appreciating. And when you come back home, you're less of a complainer. It becomes a habit. And that's one of the things I love most about travel. It makes you such a deeper, more content person. Yeah, you just said exactly what I was going to say now, is that when I got back home now, when I'm back with friends and family, I mean, my my mother tells me I'm changed, completely changed. I don't complain about things, really. I in a much better mood, things that would annoy me before does not annoy me anymore. And I think this is probably the best thing at all. I mean, after all, the most important thing in life is to be happy. And uh, and I think definitely that's what travel has given me. So even though I can sometimes look back and be sad about the sacrifices, I maybe have one friend left in Denmark, really one I can call my true friend. I have not 
had much time together with family as I would have liked. But those are the only two real sacrifices I've had to make to get so much else in my life. So I think the decision to travel has definitely been the best I've made in my life. I also made many mistakes, of course. I should have done this much earlier, but my uh, my parents decided I I couldn't leave business school until I had finished it. I wanted to drop out after a year to do this project, but I had to wait an additional two uh, another two years. Um, that was just the agreement before that. They would not allow me to do what I really wanted, and that was to travel. I don't like going to school and learn about things you have no interest in and sitting and working with homework. I think it would be much better if they could make a more flexible early school system in Denmark, maybe anywhere in the world. So, Because I learn a lot of things in school that I have no need for and that I have no interest in. And when you do something in your life you have absolutely no interest in and hate doing every day, that's when you get very easily annoyed. And I think that's also why now I'm more happy and don't get easily annoyed with things than frustrated or complain is that I'm happy with what I do. And that is, I think the most important thing in the life is to find something that you like doing. Then it doesn't really also feel like work. And that's probably the best thing that came out of all this travel. But I mean, it's not like it's over now. I'm just back home to get a driver's license. I'm still traveling full time. I travel within my own country. And then in January, I'm hitting the road again to travel full time outside my own country again. So We're going to do a lot of the states, and I look forward to that because without a car in the states, it's difficult to experience the countryside. There's not very good public transport. Well, I'm smiling here on the other end of the microphone because you're talking like a truly seasoned world traveler. You know, you become a more content person. You become a deeper person. But, man, the one thing that really is still annoying is sitting at home not traveling (laughs) when you're a world traveler. So I kind of feel you. I know where you're coming from. And yes, it's sort of like an addiction. Steve McQueen once famously said in the movie Le Mans that racing is life. Everything else is just waiting, right? And of course, everybody who races anything in this life loves that quote. In the movie's context itself, it was kind of seen as sort of a shallow way of looking at life. But I think a lot of people who spend a lot of time and focus on world travel really do become addicted to it like that. It's the focus. It's what I want to do. If I'm at home, I'm just thinking about my next trip. I'm planning my next trip, always planning my next trip. I can be on a trip and be planning my next trip. It almost can become an obsession, but in many ways... It sure is fun, and at least it doesn't destroy your body, at least you hope, unless you get ravaged with malaria or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. But also, it's interesting you should mention movies. It's another big interest of mine. I think movies and travel can do the same thing, and that is that for at least a certain amount of time, it can make you forget about things. It can make you forget that it is a movie. You're just part of it, and you forget about your problems, and you forget about maybe things that you worry about. It's an escape from your everyday life with its problem and challenges. So I think movies is something you can always do if you have the time at home, but travel is, you need more time to do that. Uh, but that's what I did. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time when I, before traveling, getting ready to travel was with movies, and that was an escape. The good thing about travel is almost anywhere you go, okay, you might not like everywhere you go, especially not someplace in Africa, but you learn from it. So not everywhere is nice, but everywhere is interesting. And that's why world travel for me is, um, and I think always will be my main interest. Now, there are a couple things there that I think are worthy of extended conversation. The first one you talked about was the influence of television and movies on your travel directly. I remember one time Emily and I finally watched Slumdog Millionaire together. 
And she had a real reticence to go to India. She just was kind of scared to go to India. And I was watching that movie with her thinking, oh, man, now we're never going to go to India. <laughs> you know, oh, in the yeah. back of my mind. Because it's just some of the horrifying things that happen in that movie, especially near the beginning. And she ended up wanting to go more after she saw it. And we ended up watching a whole wonderful documentary series by historian Michael Wood called The Story of India. And we ended up pretty much planning our trip to India around some of the places he went and talked about in that show. And we couldn't have had a better time. We even took our four-month-old daughter with us. So, yeah, I mean, places that Anthony Bourdain has been to, places that Michael Palin has been to, for God's sake. I mean, we went to Kaliningrad basically because we were introduced to that whole idea from a Michael Palin episode. And, you know, we were talking about Kaliningrad briefly before we recorded this show. You've been there as well. A little enclave of Russia that's near Poland that nobody even knows exists. And you've got to fly there if you're on a single entry visa. Just there are so many fascinating places all over the world. So, yeah, I mean, travelers tend to not want to watch the world happen on TV. They want to go experience the world. And that's one of the greatest gifts of travel. You can smell, you can taste, you can feel what's going on instead of just watching and listening to it on TV. That's wonderful, but you still want to watch the movies. You still want to watch television when you get home. I mean, Emily and I watched Out of Africa with Robert Redford, and we did that after we had been to that part of Africa in Kenya, and it just made the movie just so much more interesting to watch. Yeah. It's it's interesting about uh, sorry it's interesting about Kaliningrad. You can actually visit without a Russian visa. You can get a Kaliningrad only visa that's valid for seventy two hours. You can get that just by driving in overland. So if your listeners want to visit Kaliningrad, it can be done very cheaply. There are many low cost airlines flying into Gdansk and Poland, and then you can just take the bus into Kaliningrad. You just need to contact a, a local tour operator. I think a week before going, and then they'll meet you at the border, and you'll get the Kaliningrad only visa. That's a It'll be an easy and cheap way to to visit a an a state of Russia. They call it Oblast. Um, they have so many of them, but but it is different from the rest of Russia. I've seen uh, much more European and a lot cheaper than going to Moscow or, or Saint Petersburg. Um, it's interesting what you said about Slumdog Millionaire that you your wife wanted to go there even more. I think when you watch those films from all over the world from different countries, you and if you see people having trouble or like in that movie, you know, he's lived in the slum. And uh, I think also you get to care for those kind of people. You want to go out there and meet those people firsthand. And I think that's also what travel for me when I was a teenager watching all these movies from all over the world, especially South Korean cinema. When you watch a movie from South Korea, maybe it's Italy, some of those movies, you really get the feeling that that could never have been done in America. Because the culture difference, how they uh, directed it, a, a completely different experience from your typical movie that you watch in America, or not typical, but the kind of productions that comes out of Hollywood is a different kind of movie, and thereby also a completely different experience from what you're used to. I know Americans, they don't like uh, subtitles very much, but I think the very best foreign films, I think it, it will be well worth it. Yeah, my wife's dyslexic also, so the subtitles drive her nuts, but she'll still watch the movie anyway just because it's interesting to watch, you know. Try and watch a short one then maybe. There's so many good <laughs> ones in 90 minutes, 80, 90 minutes from Italy uh, and uh, South Korea. Those two countries, I think, after America, obviously, would be two of my favorite uh, countries for foreign films. Well, Emily's fallen in love with the Bollywood movies too. I don't like After them at all. <laughs> I don't like them at all. They are, it's just uh, musicals everywhere. It can be like a thriller or a drama. And then suddenly out of the blue, they'll just start singing. Yes, uh, it's a woman thing, I think. 
Definitely. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I've watched some movies from India, but I, I, they're good, but I didn't find them that good. I, I found it very annoying that suddenly out you're watching a very serious movie and suddenly they'll start singing. That's, that does not happen in real life. <laughs> if there's a murder case, the policeman is not going to start singing in the middle of the crime scene. And uh, that's just right. how it is often in, in Bollywood. So that's, again, a culture difference. Yeah. You can respect it, you can find it interesting, but you don't necessarily need to like it. And that's the same thing I found with many African countries that with a lot of poverty and where I had many, many challenges and was experienced corruption and things like that. It might not be very pleasant, but because you travel so much, you, you're comfortable being uncomfortable and you find it very interesting. It does not need to be nice, like staying in a, a five-star resort, but it's an, it's an experience. And many times those experiences in Africa where you you manage to get a visa on, on the border. You're in doubt if you can get it. You get your stamp. You get in. Those moments are, are really fantastic, especially because you, you work very hard on it. And that's the thing with me. If you want to go to every country like I, I wanted so, so badly, you also depend on luck. So, yeah, when you have a challenge at the, the border in Africa, and if you don't get that visa, it will add extra days or months to your journey. Yeah, I would hope I'm not at the border for months. That would probably cause me to turn around and go somewhere else. <laughs> no, 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 not on the border. I mean, you, you can be asked to send back to the capital of that country you're in because you can't go to the next one and then you can wait for a visa there. But then if you can't get it, then you might having to go to a third country. And, That's right. That's right. And maybe they also won't help you. So you just never know uh, with African and rules are changing all the time in many of these countries. So it might say online, oh, Americans can get a visa on the border on arrival and you get there and sorry, it changed a week ago. It happened yes. to a guy in, in Mauritania. He drove all the way down, I think 2,000 kilometers, maybe 100, sorry, 1,000 something miles. And uh, they just told him they just changed the rules and he had to go all the way back and apply at the embassy. So it's just travel can sometimes be frustrating, uh, but overall, very, very rewarding. Now, the other part that you were just again alluding to that I want to get to is this whole idea of going to difficult countries. You mentioned Mauritania, which we know to be a difficult place to go to. Some of the people who have the most amazing, crazy, dangerous border stories about practically getting killed or whatever were trying to get into that country. But what I want to underscore for these guys is you have been to every country on earth. That includes Iran. That includes North Korea. That includes Syria and Yemen. Some of these places that are just extremely difficult. Central African Republic is known for being the oh, Wild yeah. West. South was... Sudan, Somalia, Eritrea. Yep. Some of these countries, Democratic Republic of the Congo, which is pretty dangerous. Oh, yeah. There's always a perception about certain countries. Some of it is well-earned. Some of it is merely a relic of the past. And I've noticed, especially in Western cultures, once a country gets a reputation, it's theirs to keep. There's no going back. People still think that if you go to Bosnia, it's going to be war-torn and you get shot at. People hear you're going to Rwanda and they think you've got rocks in your head. Oh, my gosh, they slaughter people in the streets there. Whereas that's nowadays, that's the most underrated country in the world. Oh, I, I mean, agree. I agree. Rwanda is like an incredibly friendly place and beautiful. We went to Ethiopia earlier this year and people are like, well, isn't that like a dry desert where a bunch of children are starving? And it was one of the most beautiful, lush, gorgeous countries in Africa with the most amazing food. So what we think is going to happen when we actually get to a country based on our preconceived notions and indeed what they've told us about on the news may be very different than when you get there. I'd like for you to talk about some of the countries that really are crazy and challenging when you get there 
and also some of the other countries that you know are completely different in a good way than what we were led to believe when you go there. Yeah, I'll start with Iran as a country for the last category. America and Iran has, have not had good relations for many years. Uh, the government of Iran has done some things that we can disagree with and find bad, but the people are amazing. I find Iranians to be the friendliest people in the world. Um, I hitchhiked from the airport of Tehran, I think the second car stop, an English teacher. He took me, showed me some of Iran and then took me to my hotel. In the streets of Iran, when I was walking there, I was asking for directions. People would ask me if they could pay me a taxi. Uh, this has not happened anywhere else in the world. Fantastic people. And you'll hear the same thing from many, many other travelers who's been to Iran. It's a favorite country, I think, for many world travelers. Difficult countries to visit. Equatorial Guinea, not for Americans, so, but for Europeans, it's, uh, it's very difficult. I wasted time at the embassy in Pretoria. Then I was told I could get it in Gabon. Libreville, Gabon. I wasted around a week on that. Also, end up saying sorry. And uh, then I got to Nigeria by um, writing a, a piece of paper about what I was doing. And then I said, I really need to get to your country to visit every country. And then they decided to help me for a fair price. Other people with the Equatorial Guinea visa, people have paid a fortune for it elsewhere. That's usually how they get it. They end up paying, a, you could call it a bribe. Um, it's an, a very interesting country, to say the least. Angola is also a country that's notoriously hard to get into. Yes, I think some of the people that's been to every country named it the most difficult to visit. But there's a loophole I'm happy to share with people. Um, you get to Sao Tome and Principe, the embassy in Sao Tome. You um, ask for a transit visa for five days. So you can, you can have five days in Angola. Maybe you would have liked to have two weeks, but then you, you would have to pay a lot of money or be very lucky to get the visa somewhere in Africa, maybe. But to get that transit visa is very easy. You just need to show a ticket out of Angola. Of course, the one to Angola and then a ticket out of Angola to another country. And that worked very well for me. That was all they wanted. So it ended up being a very easy visa to get that five-day transit visa. But if you need a normal tourist visa or a business visa, it can be very, very difficult. Now, see, there you go. There's yet another life-changing travel tip that you got just by listening to this show, how to go to Angola. See, yeah. I'm excited. I'm going to rattle off some names of countries, and I'd love for you to tell me what it's like to be there, kind of like as a lightning round, if you know what I mean. Uh, just give me like your quick impressions. Syria. I went there during the war. Many people gave me strange looks because I was told I was the only tourist in Syria. So it was a surreal experience. I saw smoke from bombs on the way in. and uh, But I'm happy I made it out. I'm happy I've had that experience. So how did you go to Syria then? If you're the only tourist in the whole country, according to them, I mean, what was the visa procedure? Uh, it took many months. I had contact at Danish television, and he had a friend in Syria that was a friend of the Syrian ambassador in North Korea of all countries. And I emailed with him back and forth, and um, uh, he decided to help me. So he contacted people at, the, I think, the government in Syria. They allowed me to visit. They sent the visa down to Pretoria, South Africa, where I was based last year. Uh, most of the, the time, Pretoria and Johannesburg and the, the embassies in Pretoria. And I got it there and then I traveled overland from Beirut to Damascus and back to Beirut. At the border, they did not believe that anyone would visit Syria during the war. They probably thought I was going to fight for Islamic State or, or things like that. <laughs> so uh, I was... Um, it was very difficult to get through the border, even with the visa. But in the end, they believed me. And uh, I'm so happy I, I managed to visit Syria because I waited for five years, I think, for the war to end. But as it didn't end and I was towards 
the end of my project, Syria is one of the last countries left. I uh, decided to go in despite the war. Did you feel threatened at any time when you were there or did it go pretty smoothly? Pretty smoothly. I had very good uh, contact that is trusted by Danish television. So I knew I was in good hands and uh, there's no war going on. The bombings is not going on in the center of Damascus. So there was a road where there was no war. So I could only see it from a distance. So wow, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. But at the same time, I did not think it was a big risk because I was not in any area where there was direct war. It was happening maybe 10, 20 kilometers outside. How about South Sudan? One of my least favorite countries. My taxi driver went to prison for taking a photograph of me. Wow. So, um, yeah, they took a, he took a photo of me in front of some building. And then some people, they came, uh, took my camera, checked it. And they kept asking me if I was a journalist. They probably wanted to take me as well. Uh, I just apologized as much as I could. I didn't know. And uh, I knew the, the brother of the taxi driver because he was the guy that helped me out with transfers within the country. And he got him out of prison again, but it was it was tough. It's not an easy country. It's the newest country in the world, and they have been in constant conflict for many years. So it's um, it's not a place to go. Don't go there. That's the best thing I can tell listeners. Libya. Libya, I also got help from the same contact at Danish television. Many embassies, Libyan embassies, said they did not want to help me. I contact, I think, almost all I could find. Um, where I could easily travel and then maybe get the visa if, if an ambassador would be interested in helping me, but nowhere. What happened was I got this phone number of a contact that was responsible for foreign press, added him on WhatsApp, and within 20 minutes, he gave me guaranteed me a visa. He uh, called up uh, his contact at the airline, sponsored me a free ticket in and out, and um, took care of everything. So um, I already had two hotels that had agreed to host me, so he did not, but the rest he took care of. And... Uh, I had an amazing time. I ended up meeting the, the prime minister in, in Tripoli at a press conference. He was just talking about how ISIS had beheaded some Libyan policemen. Horrible thing. And he had a press conference about that. And then a minute or two later, I'm asked to go on stage and responsible for foreign press tells the prime minister about me. And uh, then we have a, a chat and then we have our photos taken, shaking his hand. And uh, that was quite an, an interesting experience as well. Now, it sounds like the more countries you visited, Henrik, the more privileges you got in terms of free travel, free hotels, uh, special treatment in the countries you went to. So maybe it is a good idea to save some of those challenging countries for last, not necessarily because you dread going there or you kind of have to do it just to fulfill having been to every country on the list, but because you're more likely to get in because of the mission you're on. That's what I'm kind of gathering from what you're telling me. One of the best tips is to visit the easy countries first, so you get your number up high, then people start believing in you. If you want to go into Libya when you've only been to maybe 10 countries, I think you can forget about it. Maybe if you have uh, a lot of followers. I did not have that in the beginning, but now after I visit every country, I, on total on social media, I have more than 100,000. So that is good. That helps a lot. But obviously, most of them are on Twitter. Instagram and Facebook is... Uh, are two different medias I, I have to spend more time on, but Twitter is my main thing. I think they suspect your intentions a lot less. In other words, if you've only been to 10 countries and you want to go to Yemen, you know the State Department in the United States is going to be all over you because you must be going there to train with ISIS or something. But if you've been to 200 countries on the TCC list and you're trying to go to Yemen, they'll basically go, okay, all right, that guy, he's that guy who wants to go to every country. We've seen guys like him before. They're crazy. And they'll go, all right, look, let's see what we can do to get you in here. 
I completely get that. I think that's interesting. So I think that's important to realize. Yes. And also in terms of companies, in terms of people to help you, anyone you talk to, the amount of countries you've been to and the amount of followers you have would be the two most, I think, important things in terms of getting any kind of support. Yeah. Even with us, we're seeing that because we have a pretty significant social media following as dating coaches. And then we've been to a number of countries now. We're starting to see that we get uh, more favors granted to us by travel companies and so forth. So I'm probably going to be a little bit more assertive about that, having heard your story, because I'm motivated by it. You know, one of the other things I'm reminded of, Henrik, is how many different kinds of travelers there are. Obviously, there are business travelers, people who are going to these places because their company told them to do it and they have to work and they're basically in and out. Other people, I think, are comfort travelers. They're vacationers. They want to go somewhere where there's a beach with their two weeks of precious vacation every year and just lay out. Or they want to go to Costa Rica and drink beer and then come home. And and they're not necessarily interested in much else. Then you've got people who are adventure travelers who are kind of always looking for the adrenaline rush. But I think you are a different kind of traveler yet again. You're a traveler who relishes the complexity, the challenge of travel itself. You're sitting here talking about writing all these people and trying to figure out how to get a visa. It's almost like travel is the adventure for you. Travel is a sport to you. And I think that's incredibly fascinating. Would you agree with that assessment? Well, it would be good for me to agree that it's fascinating, but thank you very much for that. But I am no, it's been a fascinating journey, definitely. And I, I would say I like any kind of travel in that. I also like to relax. I've been twice for four weeks. I think it is three and a half weeks lately in the Maldives. And then in 2013, I was also four weeks in the Maldives. So I also like to completely relax. I get that people live very stressful life. They don't need to go and hitchhike in Africa. They have a lot of stress at home. They don't need that adventure, what is more important for them is probably to de-stress and to to recharge the batteries, so to speak, and get back to work uh, with more energy. But for me, I I like any kind of travel. Some people uh, would like me to say that everyone should try and travel more and to travel, go out and see stuff. But I do understand people that just want to go to Hawaii and relax, because if they only have one or two week vacation a year, they maybe don't have much time to relax and have that time to to get ready to get back to work and to, I mean, it's, it's also sometimes I find big cities not to be very relaxing. So I can understand that you just want to be on a beach and relax. Yeah, you kind of go through different moods and different phases. I think that would describe how we are too. Sometimes we love to go to Tokyo and eat sushi and enjoy the big city. Other times we do like to take a break. Like after our India trip, we went to the Maldives also and just laid out on the beach for a few days. And it felt kind of good after the stress of going to that part of the world. Uh, But I can also relate to the whole idea of solving the puzzles and this being something exciting just because it is travel, like going to Belarus and having them not want to let us in and trying to figure out how to navigate our way around that issue. All of those things are also fun to me. And I think it takes a special kind of a person to appreciate that. And that's why I appreciate having you on the show, Henrik. Thanks for this. Oh, yeah. Thank you very much for having me on. I love talking about my adventures. And I could have talked to you for many, many hours. You know, we both love travel. That's why I saw, you know, the Travel a Century Club thing, and uh, which we have talked a lot about in, in this episode. And uh, it's great to meet like-minded people. Uh, I hope more people will travel a lot more. It's really what uh, I think the world needs to have a better understanding. It's the best thing you can do with your time. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, the whole idea of being able to encourage other people to travel 
is at the heart of what you and I both do. I think when you become a traveler and you have all these experiences and indeed these adventures, you want other people to be able to do that too, especially when you happen upon the realization that it doesn't have to cost an arm and a leg financially. So that's really, really good. I want you guys to be able to visit Henrik's site. I've set up a special URL for you. It's www.mountaintoppodcast.com front slash travel. Let's just make it travel, T-R-A-V-E-L. And there you'll be able to find Henrik's website, which is fascinating. Lots of pictures, lots of fun, lots of travel tips, lots of interesting, adventurous travel tips. And I think you really will enjoy it. And guys, if you aren't in on my newsletter just yet, be sure to go to www.mountaintoppodcast.com and sign up. You'll get daily actionable advice on how to be a better man and get better women. Also, go to the YouTube channel, which is Scott McKay on YouTube, and uh, check out the videos that I'm putting up on a regular basis uh, that will also change your life. And of course, they're free, free, free. They don't cost you a dime. Until I talk to you again real soon, this is Scott McKay. Be good out there. The Mountaintop Podcast is copyright 2016 by X and Y Communications. All rights reserved worldwide. Be sure to visit www.mountaintoppodcast.com for show notes. And while you're there, sign up for the X and Y Communications newsletter. This is Ed Roy Odom speaking for the Mountaintop Podcast.